you know, flying up there for the first time and part of a large force exercise. And, you know, we pick up the survivor and uh, we're flying, we're flying back. And I kind of look out my door and I see this A-10 flying below us. And I was like, oh my gosh. And, and then, of course, my uh, my aircraft commander at the time is like, you should be embarrassed by that. You should never let them fly below you. <laughs> so he's like, get down there. So... Uh, Live with Attachment 075, telling the stories of air men and women worldwide. With your hosts, Daniel Black, Tanner Coleman, and Max Hagman. Good morning, afternoon, evening, everyone who's listening. Uh, welcome to the Live with Detachment 075 podcast. Today we have Captain Brian Tordoff. You might have, if you paid attention, if you're listening to this in sequential order, you might remember him from our last podcast. He popped in for a bit. He is an HH-60G pilot. For those of you that know your helicopters, that is the PAYPOC responsible for the majority of combat rescue, search and rescue operations. We're excited to have him on. We haven't had a podcast. We haven't had a PAVHAWK pilot on yet. So we got some interesting questions. Sir, how are you doing? Awesome. Good. Uh, how are you doing, Cat Block? I'm doing well. You know, it's been a been a very interesting week for the wing. We have GMC week coming up next to Lead Lab tomorrow. Okay. So mm, that's pretty much a, an event in the wing where we have our GMC cadets take roles as a wing staff and lead a lead a lead lab so oh that sounds dangerous <laughs> you know what it's actually a lot tamer um, than than you might expect but i remember when we were in person we used to go to like the beach and do a lead lab there of course you know now that things are online for the most part for some part i don't know the stats but uh things are much tamer yeah nice well cool sounds like it's gonna be fun mm-hmm. so let's um let's start off with a little introduction maybe give us a little more broader idea of what you do, who you are, where you've been, and uh, what you plan to do. Yeah, for sure. So like I said, or like you said before, uh, my name is Captain Brian Toroff, go by Mittens. I am originally from Wisconsin, a uh, small town in Wisconsin, uh, born and raised, and then uh, went to uh, school at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, uh, kind of a big public school in the city there, and uh, did ROTC through Marquette University. Uh, debt 930. And uh, yeah, so I did my four years there. I got my uh, degree in marketing. I had no intention of ever really going into business. And that's where you met your wife. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm sure she brought it up, but uh, you know, we grew up uh, competing against each other and we really weren't friends for a couple of years, but uh, oh, no. uh, yeah, I guess things just kind of worked out well for us. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I did the uh, did the ROTC thing and uh, got a pilot training slot. And uh, from there, went on to the IFT, followed by uh, T6 flight training, uh, elected to uh, go helicopters. Uh, my commander, you know, gave, kind of gave me the the chance to to change my mind at the last minute there and uh, go T38s, but uh, kind of had my heart set so. Uh, so went on to Fort Rucker, Alabama, and uh, flew the TH1 for a little bit. Uh, scared myself hovering and uh, you know doing the auto rotations for the first time, uh, but not too bad. So I, I, I moved on and uh, got selected to uh, become an HH6 pilot, 
and uh, went to Kirtland, learned how to fly the, the Pavehawk. And uh, now I'm here, uh, now in, uh, at uh, Davis Mountain Air Force Base in uh, Tucson, Arizona. Awesome. Yeah, that's quite the, the resume there. So the plane you were talking about was the Osprey, right? Was that the one? Uh, the which one? The CH-1, oh, the, Yeah, so it, it's actually the TH-1. So it's basically oh, a, uh, yeah, it's like an upgraded version of the Huey. Um, oh, okay. It's still got the, uh, yeah, it's, it's just got some upgraded engines. Um, you know, it's a little more updated with the, the glass cockpit and things like that. Um, great, great helicopter to learn on. And uh, you get that classic Huey noise, which is the best. <laughs> nice. I don't know my helicopters as well as I should, but the seems like you do. Was that always what you wanted to do when you were in ROTC? Were you just like pilot all the way and then decided you wanted to go rotary or was it rotary all the way 100 from day one? Yeah, man. Uh, I, I pretty much always had my uh, my heart set on the on the sixty. Um, you know, back when I was in high school, uh, I saw the the big uh, Inside Combat Rescue documentary, and all the guys like cringe at it now because supposedly, you know, like just like everything that's produced, um, you know, it's very produced, and uh, you know the missions were real, but uh, the dr- the drama was really built up. Either way, uh, it got me interested. Um, so I really wanted to do the uh, the the combat search and rescue thing. So yeah, that's that's really what what got me on, even on the just on the flying track. So I, I really wasn't interested in flying until I kind of heard about this mission. Uh, I thought, you know, that's that's pretty cool. And so, you know, that was all the way back in high school, and uh, you know, I applied for the for the uh, ROTC scholarship. You know, I was blessed enough to get it, uh, and the rest was history. Awesome. So the documentary you were talking about was that the what was the name of that documentary? Yeah, so it was called Inside Combat Rescue, uh, and it really focused on, I think it was Afghanistan. Uh, it was on National Geographic. I think they had maybe a couple seasons. Um, and it, it focused mostly on the pararescuemen, uh, guys, and I can kind of explain that one too, uh, guys in the back of the helicopter actually doing the medicine. Um, and then also kind of tied in the air crew as well uh, and kind of did um, a little bit of... Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, a life piece, you know, it kind of talks about the struggles of deployment and uh, just trying to stay in contact with family and things like that, but also doing the mission and uh, yeah, and a uh, pretty cool mission. And so that's really, really what got me started. I've never seen it. Would you recommend it? Or you mentioned it was a little cringy. Should I stay away? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, I wouldn't call it cringy, uh, okay. but knowing what I know now, it, it just, you know, I'm, I'm too close to the sausage being made. So uh, I, I know all the <laughs> okay. things that are like, uh, I don't know necessarily believe that it was quite like that. But uh, then again, uh, they, were, they were super busy back in the day and they made, they did some, some awesome stuff too. Uh, so you can't scoff at that one. You know, that actually leads perfectly into the next segment here. Uh, you know, what are some things that when you got into your AFSC, that you thought that ended up not being so true or some things that you had to figure out along the way, you know, any misconceptions, anything you had to learn? Yeah. Uh, so when I got the pilot slot, I can, you know, I kind of thought uh, most days I'd be out there flying. It wasn't when I wasn't flying, I'd be, you know, making popcorn and hanging out around the squadron. Uh, but that's just, that's just not the truth. Uh, you know, we, we fly as much as we can, uh, but we've got old helicopters. So, you know, those things need ma- ma- quite a bit of maintenance. 
uh, and I have an office job, you know, I'm, when I'm not flying, I'm kind of a white collar worker and I'm, you know, uh, I work the job around the, the squadron. And, uh, so yeah, that was, I, I guess I thought I'd be flying more and, um, it's okay that I'm not because, uh, I stay busy other in other ways. Uh, but every pilot wants to, you know, be out there flying when they're, when they, even when they're not. Where are you stationed right now? Yeah. So right now I'm at, uh, Davis Monthan Air Force Base in Tucson, Arizona. Okay. And this is my uh, my first op. I'd call it an operational assignment outside of uh, flight school. Okay. Okay. Um, so the job that you work when you're not flying does that have to do with flying, or is it just like stuff that needs to be done? Yeah. Uh, so the job I have right now. So I'm kind of our, our squadrons, um, or one of our squadrons is money guys, and so I kind of advise the commander and. Uh, and keep track of our budget and uh, help advise them on what things we need to buy for the squadron, uh, the money that we have available for TDYs, uh, help kind of plan out, you know, the hotels and all that, all that stuff, uh, make sure people get paid or really reimbursed for their travel expenses. Um, so it's a big job. Uh, we've got uh, quite the budget this year. Um, whenever you, you know, you'll, you'll learn this once again to the Air Force, whenever you take on more taskings, uh, whenever you deploy more, um, the Air Force and the the DoD as a whole offers you you know more money to pre- prepare for that deployment. You know, buy necessary equipment and get the necessary training and things like that. Um, so, with our and we've got two deployments uh, coming up here soon. Uh, so that that money is uh, plentiful right now, at least for our training purposes. So, um, so yeah, it's it's a big job. Uh, keeps me busy, but uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. Okay, yeah, no, that definitely that would make sense, you know, because I was thinking in my mind, um, you know, if you're not flying all the time, what are you doing exactly? And we've had a couple pilots come on, and they are working on flight sim training, making like tra- training dates. It always seem to be related to TDYs or training, practicing. Um, this is the first time I've ever heard it where it's like, oh, you actually have two jobs, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You'd, uh, I'm, and I'm sure those guys had, you know, jobs around those squadrons too. Um, and we do those things too. Like just today I was, um, you know, I was preparing for a, f- a future upgrade, uh, in, in our aircraft. And so I, I did a little bit of uh, ground training with one of our instructors and, uh, we were kind of going over capabilities of other aircraft, uh, you know, around the, around the air force, because it's, it's important for us as rescue to know, what air, what other aircraft can do for us, uh, and what, you know, what we need to ask of them. So obviously, uh, as a helicopter, we're not dropping bombs. We're not, uh, you know, throwing jasms out all over. Uh, we have those guys to do that for us. If we're able to ask them and kind of communicate to them, okay, you know, here are the threats and, uh, here are the things that we need to mitigate it down before we can go in and, and make any kind of rescue attempt. But the PAVHAWK does have, um, defensive or offensive weapons on it right yep yep uh we would call them defensive you know we've got typically we fly around with 50 cals uh, so two 50 cal machine guns uh one in each door um and so we have our two pilots in the front we've got our two we call them special mission aviators or you might call them gunners in the back uh so those gunners are uh aircraft system experts uh they're they're shooting, uh, shooting the guns. They are running the hoist. They're bringing in survivors, 
and then they're also given direction to the PJs in the back. And so the PJs are the, the pararescuemen who are actually going out of the helicopter, uh, packaging up any, any patient or survivor that we have, and then getting them back into the helicopter. So if I understand this right, um, your team consists of like, and when I mean team, obviously there's like the larger team of everyone who makes the mission happen, but specifically in the helicopter, you got your pilots, you got your special mission aviators, gunners, you have your PJs. Have you ever worked with combat rescue officers? Yep. Yep. So, so combat rescue officers are, are uh, typically the, the communication conduit. So anytime that communication is happening from the ground to the aircraft, so let's say we drop off the team and then along with the crow, uh, the combat rescue officer, and we take back off into the pattern because it's just safer that way uh, for us not to be, you know, a sitting duck on the ground there. So it's going to be the crow who's communicating to us uh, any kind of time requirements uh, if they need additional uh, additional crew members to help get this uh, this patient packaged up uh, or any other requirements they need. Uh, other things they can do, they can call in uh, call for fires where they, you know, if there's a, if there's a threat that they can see, uh, they can mark that threat and then they can call us back in uh, to, to take out any threat that could, uh, could threaten their survivor, basically. Now, that's really interesting. And I'm, I'm starting to get really excited because my number one desired AFSC is Crow. And it's really interesting to hear how much that you, you know, communicate with them. And this is probably the most insight I've gotten onto what they actually do. Um, because a lot of it, you know, they say it's like, oh, you're the liaison between this and that. You're part of the team. But before we go into crow-specific questions, was there anyone I, I left out on that list earlier as part of the nope. team? Okay. Nope. Uh, th that's that's our typical loadout uh, deployed. Uh, we can take different team members from different uh, DOD agencies. Um, we've had SEALs in the back of helicopters before, and they're... You know, they're doing seal things. They're shooting and, they're uh, things. and things, things like that. Yeah. So uh, I can't really speak to that one too much. Um, but yeah, we we have the capability to carry on different teams uh, as required. Okay. And you know that that's cool too. I, I've heard a lot about actually. No, that's a lot. I, I have never heard about um, Navy SEALs in the back of Paypox. But when you're commuting, communicating with the combat rescue officer, what are the more of the common things that they will typically ask you for. And if you, if you could in, uh, indulge me and maybe say in, in the lingo of the radio command. Sure. And so, so uh, typical conversation might go be like, uh, you know, as pilot, I'd say, you know, crow pilot, you say go. And I would say something like uh, uh, survivor is at the one o'clock, two miles, we're approximately five minutes out. Injuries are as follows. Broken wrist, uh, expected concussion, slight bleeding out of his leg, uh, but he can still he can still walk. And uh, so then the crow uh, would take that into consideration and say, okay, this is going to be, uh, so the crow might say something like, uh, recommend uh, quick snatch or something like that. And so we say, okay, copy, recommend quick snatch. And so, uh, Something we might do is we might go uh, recon the area, make sure there uh, aren't any imminent threats in the area. And so then uh, the medbird, uh, which is typically our dash two. So we've got our, our flight lead bird, uh, which 
has the crow on it, who's really making uh, decisions. And then we've got our uh, our dash two, which has got our typically our med heavy team. So like uh, you know the, the PJs who are basically the medical experts to do the quick snatch on the survivor. They get them on board, and then they're working the medicine in the back of the helicopter as we're egressing the area. That's okay. I'm kind of geeking out right now because, you know, just being able to hear <laughs> the exact lingo, the exact language that you talk with them. And it's really starting to paint a picture uh, for me. I think everyone else who's listening to this podcast and, you know, and as you're talking, one thing really stood out to me. And if you, I'm not sure if you know this, but detachment 075 puts up the second most um, cadets to go to phase two for um, combat rescue. I've heard that. Don't quote me on it, but it's uh, <laughs> that's I've heard it twice, I think. And Dang, that's that's pretty cool. I I like to think so, and I'd like to be one of them. But yeah, I know there are other cadets out there who who want to as well. And so this question is really for them. And if you're sitting here listening right now and you want to become a crow, you know, turn your volume up, listen because Captain Tordoff is going to ask you. It's going to let you know what qualities he wants to see in you as a leader as a crow yeah so you know the big mantra uh, especially in the flying community is humble credible approachable and so you know as a as a pilot i want to see a crow who's humble enough who doesn't think that they nece- necessarily knows it all uh because none of us do someone who's you know has, has a little bit of humility and can get along with other guys and uh you know so much of our time is spent away from the aircraft especially in a deployed environment uh so just just being kind of one of the guys is a great quality to have. Uh, being credible, uh, knowing their job, knowing the aircraft, uh, knowing when it's a good time to speak and when it's a good time to listen, uh, or knowing like when the when the air crew is really getting task saturated, the radios are going crazy, uh, and knowing kind of when to to wait for a, a good time to inject and and to provide his expertise. That's awesome. Uh, it's a really good quality to have, and then approachable. Approachable not only by aircrew uh, because we want to we want to get in there and ask him questions and uh, get his recommendation on, on certain situations out there, uh, especially if we're planning for a uh, we call it a uh, kind of a planned rescue. Uh, so let's say a throwing out an example, F-16 pilot goes down, uh, we can't get to him immediately, and so we have to do uh, basically a, an overnight planning session when that. Crow is able to be extremely approachable and and provide his insight and uh, provide that expertise. That's you know that's an awesome quality to have, uh, and then also approachable by his own guys. Like, who wants to work with a jerk? I can tell you, nobody. <laughs> so uh, when we see that uh, his PJs respect him as a crow, that kind of gives us a signal. Like, okay, like this uh, this guy's a good guy to work with. His guys respect him, so. You know, let's give them a shot and uh, see if we can't make a, a high-functioning team out here. How many different teams um, do you typically work with? Do you pretty much see the same PJs over and over? Do you see the same crows over and over? Or is it always different, new names, new faces every day? Yeah. Uh, so we don't actually fly with PJs and crows every flight. Uh, those guys have a lot of training requirements. Those guys are, you know, jumping out of jumping out of aircraft and a lot of shooting. And so they're not always training with us, but when they do, so we train with our guys here at Davis Monthan, you know, just home station training. But then when we deploy, 
uh, we might be matched up with a unit. Uh, so last time we went out there, uh, went to Iraq, uh, we got matched up with a, a reserve unit from Patrick uh, Air Force Base in Florida. And those guys were awesome. Like those guys were, uh, as a first deployment for me, uh, those guys are a great example of, of what to expect and, you know, really good professional crows and PJs alike. Um, and so then when, when we get deployed, uh, we do what's called, what's called hard crewing. And so as an air crew, like we'll, we'll always fly together, the four of us, and then we'll tag on a couple PJs and a crow, uh, and they'll be part of our hard crew for, you know, two to four months, uh, however long they're there and however long we're there. And so, in that way, we really get to know each other well. Uh, those guys in the back know exactly where they're, they want their gear set up, uh, exactly how, you know, responsibilities. So, you know, they know that if the, if the gunner gives them a, cer a certain signal or uh, gives them a hand signal or something like that, the, the PGA or the crow knows exactly what that means. And, the, you know, there doesn't need to be any extraneous communication, which really saves time uh, and has, has the potential to save lives. Okay. Yeah, no, that would, that definitely answers that question. Good. Um, and as we, I'd like to digress into what makes up a typical mission. So my question is, you know, if there's a team out there, uh, F-16 pilot gets shot down, how long until you know they get shot down to when you can be there on the scene and they're being hoisted up? Yeah. So a lot of it is, it depends. Uh, it depends on where we are uh, exactly located. So, uh, for example, in Iraq, there aren't there aren't uh, all kinds of uh, Air Force H-60s all over the place. You know, we have very few in theater, and so uh, if they get shot down at an inconvenient location, it might take us, you know, it might take us an hour or two to get there. Um, you know, keeping it all on class here, like, yeah, not that there's. There, there isn't that much classified uh, left about the Black Hawk, uh, the Black Hawk helicopter, but uh, uh, traveling, you know, around the country, it may take a little bit of time and it may take some, you know, some extra gas from the tanker or something like that. And so, and it also, it's also going to depend on the circumstances of, of where that pilot is. Uh, is he, you know, behind enemy lines? Is he on our side of the line? Uh, are there, you know, are there, uh, rogue elements out there? Are there, you know, things like uh, Shia militia groups or or things like that? Uh, basically, bad guys out there who would really like to, you know, get a hold of him uh, for, you know, propaganda or information purposes or anything like that. Um, so, what's the what's the sense of urgency? Uh, is the is the dude really hurt? Is he really banged up? Is his back broken? You know, are we going to need 10, 15 minutes on the ground to get this guy packaged up so we don't, you know, hurt him even more? Um, a lot of things that go into it, but those are the kinds of things that we're thinking about. Uh, in addition to thinking like, how can we make this more advantageous for us? Like, do we have to wait until it's like nighttime, you know, because you know, the, the bad guys may or may not have night vision goggles. Uh, obviously we, we all do. So that's kind of like an advantage for us. Uh, or do we need to go right now is speed our friend right now. Um, so those are the kinds of, kinds of things that we're thinking about. Uh, once we get a, a mission drop. Okay, then let me, that has a lot of variables. Totally understand. Let me rephrase <laughs> the question at that point. When you know that there's a mission going on, are, do they 
do they say, uh, Captain Tordoff, you're on standby because there's a mission right now. Something could go wrong and we need you to be in your aircraft in five minutes. Or, and then there's times of like, okay, there's no missions going on. Get some sleep. Yeah. Uh, so the way we work it, um, there's a certain, uh, there's a certain time period that we ha we're basically contracted to, uh, that we need to be in the aircraft and taking off. Uh, that's all, that's all classified and it changes, you know, based on the day. So if there's, uh, if there's lots of activities going on, maybe our, our timeline is shorter. Uh, if there's not much going on, maybe our timeline's a little bit longer. Other things that happen, like, uh, we could be tasked to support very specific, um, operations. And so like one of the things that, uh, our group was involved in two years ago, uh, was providing support for taking out the, the top ISIS leader at the time. And so our timelines and our locations were changed, uh, based on, you know, supporting this, basically this strike attempt. Um, so, we, you know, anytime that, you know, the fast movers are out there flying, uh, they need, you know, they want to be assured that if they go down, uh, they're not going to be just left out there. Uh, so that's, that's kind of where we come in. And so that's kind of where we, uh, change up our timeline a little bit. Um, as far as what happens at notification, uh, especially if we're kind of at our, at our home base, we'll have our, our younger guys, uh, go up to the, the helicopter and start spinning it up. And then our, uh, our more senior pilots and, uh, and the crow, uh, we'll get the mission drop. We'll, you know, we'll figure out who it is. Uh, where they are, uh, the circumstances of their of what happened to them, um, and once we have that information, uh, we can pretty much step to the aircraft with reasonable confidence that we'll uh, we'll get mission approval, and uh, we'll actually be able to execute on that uh, objective. So now you are at the at the site of the crash. You know, you just got there after your um, after the commute and you're making your approach. What does that approach look like? I, I heard you mention that you do like a little circle to make sure it's clear, um, but what is the approach? Or do you usually just like get there and land or does it depend? Yeah, <laughs> it always <laughs> depends. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's one of the things I hate. Uh, and, you know, it's more senior guys than me. Uh, you know, lots of instructors say, oh, it depends. <sighs> like, oh my gosh, I've heard that a thousand times, but now I'm saying it too, so. <laughs> I guess I it guess just depends. Jerk. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, once we get overhead, uh, a lot of it's going to depend on the terrain. So are we picking this guy up in the middle of the mountains in Afghanistan? Are we picking him up, you know, in the middle of the desert? Uh, is there going to be a, a nasty brownout? So as we, as we shoot our approach in, are we, are we shooting our approach over a bunch of sand that's just going to like kick up and completely ruin our, our visibility? Um, you know, is it a water rescue? Like, is this, like is due to in the middle of the ocean. There's not a boat for miles. And can we take our time a little bit because the, the water temperature is not completely freezing. You know, can we kick out a raft to him? So at least he can get into the raft and, you know, he's not going to get bit by a shark or something crazy out there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so we might, you know, we might go directly into the zone, uh, you know, especially if it's you know going to be a hot LZ and uh, there's bad guys around. Um, Maybe we'll stay up uh, in a couple overheads and uh, try to suppress, you know, suppress those threats down uh, because it's too dangerous for just one helicopter to go in there while the other one's, you know, trying to fight off all the bad guys. Um, so yeah, it, I'm sorry, but 
it depends. <laughs> well, could you tell me at least um, some strategies you might use? Um, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, if you're trying, if you're just trying to get this one guy out of here and you know that there's, say, op four with snipers out there, you know, one strategy you might use is to go in with the helicopter, do a circle, kick up some dust and completely, you know, mask your LZ. Are, are those the kind of strategies that would be used when making an approach? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, definitely terrain is our, can be our friend. Uh, so if we, you know, we, we call it, uh, you know, terrain mask, if we think that we can put a piece of terrain in between us and the bad guys. Um, and even if, you know, we have to do something like, uh, land in a low area and kick the PJs out and they go pick it, pick the dude up and walk back to the helicopter. That's in a, a safe location. Uh, we might do something like that. You know, we, we always joke to each other, you know, those, those PJs are paid to work out, so let's uh, let's kick them out and make them go work. <laughs> uh, That's funny. Really, really, we're gonna do anything that is gonna be uh, quickest and safest. Uh, so we try to we try to balance those a little bit, um, and yeah, we take into into account you know the bad guys and what kind of equipment they're working with, and you know, can we call in like you know maybe we have a some some friends up there like an a10s or maybe some strike eagles like maybe we can call these guys in and uh you know wreak some havoc before we get in there because you know 50 cows are are uh, are nice uh they can you know they can defend us a little bit but you know what's really nice is a 500 pound bomb or <laughs> a 30 mil you know 30 millimeter uh going through uh, going through the bad guys instead of us like having to do all that dirty work. Half the detachment just went insane when you said A10, <laughs> F15, because those, those if, if if half like if you're looking for plane nerds and like anything, you just go to an AFROTC detachment. And they're gonna tell you it's oh, yeah. F15 or the A10, and uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> oh, I hear you there. So um, getting back on track, what's the biggest threat to the PayPal? Is it RPGs, anti-air of any kind. Um, is it the mission itself? Um, what what's the biggest threat for you know being a PAYPOC pilot? Yeah. Uh, so our uh, another one of our mantras is we talk about threats. We say terrain wingman threat. And so number one thing we're looking out for is the ground. Like we we're flying pretty low. Um, we're not flying super fast, but you know we're. 50 feet off the ground um how low oh 50 yeah oh wow uh, that's that's kind of where we're comfortable at uh down to that anything below that it starts uh starts becoming diminishing returns and uh everyone starts getting a little you know nervous in the, in the aircraft so i can imagine <laughs> so yeah. We, yeah we don't we don't typically go below 50 feet uh but, but yeah like you're looking out for train you're looking out for you know things like wires because you know you go to all these, you know, third world countries or, or whatever, and these wires aren't marked, you know, they, um, and even sometimes intentionally, like, uh, I, I think it was Saddam Hussein who would put these things up, uh, you know, prior to the invasion, uh, he put these things up around the, around important, uh, important cultural sites or, uh, or places that he knew that American helicopters would be flying through. And unfortunately, like we've definitely lost helicopters to things like that. Uh, so we're number one, we're looking out for that terrain, and then uh, we're flying in pretty close proximity to our wigmen. You know, we're we're always flying in a, a formation of two 
or typically we are. And so we're, we're looking out for our buddy, making sure our buddy's not doing something crazy, turning into us and we're not turning into him. And especially on a dark night, uh, that can get, you know, pretty hairy. Uh, but, but then I think really what you're asking, uh, you know, are we, our big threats out there are going to be, um, uh, small, smaller surface to air missile systems, um, things like, uh, man pads. So anything that's, that can, lock, that can, uh, launch on to, or, uh, lock onto a, an IR signature. So basically like our engines, anything that's hot on the aircraft, these, these man pads are, are just, uh, just looking for something to, to lock onto. Oh, is that uh, a type of missile man pad? Yep. Okay. So it's, uh, so it's, it's a man portable air defense system. It's, mm the long name for it. And so uh, these are pretty widely proliferated around the world. Um, and so, you know, the, the bad guys can take this, throw it in the back of a pickup truck and go, um, oh, you know, it can, it can be fired by one person. So uh, yeah, so we're, we're definitely looking out, looking out for those because those kind of uh, target low flying aircraft and especially helicopters, like, big juicy slow helicopter like mm -hmm. yeah that's that's you know that'd be awesome to you know take one out and you know for their uh you know p propaganda purposes basically um but yeah it's uh so, so things like that but even something as basic as like an ak-47 like you know those are those are threats to us because you know we're we're low and we're slow and uh obviously you know you want to bring home all the guys you take out there. So uh, definitely a threat. Yeah, but do you have um, flares or anything else on the Havehawk to like offset missiles like that? Yep, uh, we've got uh, we've got some defensive systems uh, that can kind of uh, defend us against, you know, things like that, things like man pads, uh, even uh, small surface air missile systems that use uh, radar guided threats, uh, radar guided missiles. Um, yep, we've got some, you know, flares and chaff, uh, and then other swoopy stuff that uh, is uh, more appropriate to a, uh, <laughs> a classified conversation. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 please don't say anything <laughs> uh, classified. But if you do, just know we can edit it out. Okay, yeah. good to know. <laughs> um, so let's just say that the LZ is hot, and there are op four everywhere. What kind of typically in your experience what kind of escort would you have yeah so uh great escorts for us uh our, our bread and butter is going to the a10 uh so <laughs> nice. uh flying with those guys it's great because they can fly super slow uh they're not burning tons of gas um and then they've got you know that amazing uh 30 millimeter cannon bit cannon basically uh on the nose and so Flying with those guys, uh, they can be super precise, and um, you know they can fly just as low as we can, which is pretty awesome. Uh, so, so those guys are great. Uh, things like Apaches, uh, uh, Apaches are great to fly with. Um, Strike Eagles are awesome, uh, especially you know if you really need you know a bomb on target. Mm -hmm. uh, Strike Eagles are are great. They can fly um, that low, or are they? Do they? Yeah. So strikes don't. Uh, typically fly as low as the A-10s, okay. uh, but they can they can get pretty low. Did you say the A-10 could fly at 50 feet? Uh, <laughs> you don't see them go down there too often. Uh, okay. They can get they can get pretty low. Okay. Uh, one time, you know, I was a 
a young lieutenant. Uh, we're flying up on up on the knitter. Up, it's the the Nevada uh, test range, uh, north of Nelson Air Force Base. It's basically where uh, at the center of that is what you call Area 51. But on the outside of it is a, a big military training range. And so, uh, you know, young dumb Lieutenant Tordoff over here, uh, you know, flying up there for the first time and part of a large force exercise. And, you know, we pick up the survivor and uh, we're flying, we're flying back. And I kind of look out my door and I see this A-10 flying below us. And I was like, oh my gosh. And, and then, of course, my, uh, my aircraft commander at the time is like, you should be embarrassed by that. You should never let them fly below you. <laughs> so he's like, get down there. So uh, quickly learned uh, that's not acceptable. But uh, no, those guys are awesome. And it's awesome flying with them. And when you have that kind of uh, firepower flying with you, it's it's pretty sweet. No, I love I love hearing the stories. I know our uh, listeners do too. So if any time, you know, you got another one of those just like in your pocket, just throw it out there. Make this <laughs> okay, sounds content. good. Uh, I'm sure I do. Uh, speaking of content, not sure if you noticed, um, listeners, we are trying a new audio uh, configuration here. Hopefully, you know, you're able to hear my not so silky smooth voice a little better. <laughs> um, Captain Tordoff has the privilege of being our guinea pig for this one. And... Uh, yeah, also, oh, I forgot to do my plugs at the beginning. I'm just going to throw them in right now. Skip ahead 15 seconds if you don't care about Instagram. But uh, the detachment has an Instagram uh, at live with detachment 075. Uh, so if you want to follow that, give us some feedback. Please feel free to do that. Additionally, for longevity purposes, the podcast is switching over. Um, there's people coming and going. So we will be sending out and if you want to work on the podcast, if you love what you're hearing, uh, we are going to have some new positions open. So there's going to be a, an announcement on workplace for that. Look out for it and show your interest. That's all the housekeeping items done. Uh, let's get back into the podcast. Uh, deployments. What was your last? Um, how many deployments have you had? Yeah, uh, I've only had one. Uh, I'm about to go on my second here uh, in the next month or so. Uh, first deployment was to Iraq. Um, we were obviously deployed there during the uh, combat search and rescue alert uh, posture, basically. Uh, so we we're just providing CSAR for any any other air assets that are flying in the in OIR. And you know, in Iraq, do you have any um, missions that you could tell us about? Um, declassified, of course. And uh, yeah, that you had to execute. Yeah, uh, so probably the most notable one. Um, we were we were up flying and we were doing a basically a training mission, and uh, we landed at a, a different location than our than our home base. And once we landed, we got word from the intel there on that base. They said, you know, you might want to get out of here. Uh, we, you know, we we just received intel that uh, that the Iranians are are fueling TBMs. Uh, to ballistic missiles. Um, so you guys might want to get out of here. I said, okay, that's uh, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> and what so, is a theater uh, ballistic when, missile? Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, so it's basically, no, that's fine. Uh, it's basically like a, a medium range uh, missile. So it's uh, completely guided, uh, unlike rockets, which are you know just kind of fired off and they're aimed, but uh, they're not exactly precise. 
But these missiles that the Iranians uh, fired were incredibly precise. Uh, and our intelligence knew that beforehand. Uh, so this was definitely a, a credible threat. And, uh, you know, through whatever intelligence means that they, they found out, uh, they found out that these rockets uh, were, were going to be launched that night. So, uh, so we went back. We went back home, and we got a little gas. And as we, as we were coming back, and our, our home at the time was Al Assad and uh, Al Assad Air Air Base in Iraq. And uh, so, as we were flying back in, uh, you know, the tower controller said, "Be advised, uh, multiple air aircraft on the ramp." We said, "Okay." And so we flew up closer to the ramp and just every aircraft out there uh, that we, we had seen during this entire deployment, we had already been there three months. So we, we kind of knew the, the lay of the land, but everybody's uh, rotors were turning, everybody's uh, you know, propellers were spinning, everybody was uh, spinning up to, to leave. Like, oh, geez. And so uh, we pull up to the gas, uh, you know, the, the FARP is what we call it, the basically a refueling point. And, uh, and there's no, and typically there's uh, PL, P, we call them POL, uh, basically, uh, basically guys who give you your gas. Uh, there's no POL there. There's no, there's nobody to give us our gas. And so our, our special, our SMAs, our special mission aviators are just like, okay, well, we need gas. We have to leave and we can't leave without, you know, a little bit more gas. So they get out there and they just start pumping it. And eventually some POL guys run up to them and they're like, no, you can't be doing that. You know, you can't, you're not, you're not allowed to do that. And we're like, dude, look around. There's, you know, first of all, you were near, uh, I don't know where you were, but you weren't here. And, you know, everybody's getting out of here and we're getting our gas and we're leaving too. So, uh, uh just kind of a, a funny story. Uh, so anyway, uh, we take off and uh, kind of go to a, a safer location, but we stay in the vicinity of the air, of the, uh, air base there uh, because you know there's a, a particular strike window based off the intelligence that they they gathered, and so uh, we wanted to to be around be, to help out uh, if needed to you know provide medical support or anything like that. And so we're sitting, uh, uh, we land the helicopters and we're looking right at the base and you know, we kind of sit there for a couple hours. We go up and we hit the tanker and we get a little bit more gas and we come back down we land, do that a couple more times. And um, we're getting near the end of the strike window and it kind of comes and goes and nothing happens. And uh, thought, huh, that's uh, I guess that's just, you know, a false alarm again. And all of a sudden uh, I think that I was the, first, at least I was one of the first people to see it, uh, you know, way off on the horizon. This is, one o'clock in the morning uh, and way off in the horizon, you know, you just kind of see these, these plumes, like these fireball plumes come like come up out of the ground. You're like, what the heck was that? Cause we've seen, you know, we had seen rockets and we'd seen the videos of the rockets and they're much smaller. And we just see these, like these fireballs come up out of, you know, over the horizon and uh, we see them come up over the sky and just pummel the base. Uh, and you know, it's all been documented on 60 minutes and you can you know, see the video there. Uh, you know, a couple slam into the, into the ramp. One slams into our rescue compound area, uh, especially where all of our maintenance was. Uh, luckily all of our maintainers had gotten out of there. Um, they, they had all left. And so, uh, nobody was hurt on the rescue compound. Um, 
but yeah, so so we basically watched uh, Al Saad just get pummeled with these TBMs. Uh, you know, after after this volley had gone through, uh, we flew back toward the base, and we were talking to a, a controller on the ground, and all of a sudden he just gives us a, a snap south now call, and so we make a hard right turn and we start flying back away from the base because obviously he has some kind of intel and uh kind of over our shoulder we just see these tbms this second volley of tbms just come streaking down toward the base uh and so we were we were just about to go in there and land and then we just see these tbms come and just again just pummel the ramp uh these uh aircraft hangars and uh, different areas so yeah, it was a it was a pretty surreal experience. Uh, luckily, there were no deaths. Um, it was pretty amazing that there weren't. Uh, we had we had some awesome intel uh, who basically saved their lives uh, with their intelligence and the you know the relationships that they made. So uh, kudos to them uh, for, for getting that job done and getting us out of there. Uh, but yeah, that was that was probably the craziest story of that deployment. Wow. I mean, I'm listening to this and uh, I only became aware of my facial expressions about halfway through, but wow, that is, that's insane. I mean, what a win for, for Intel, uh, you know, saving lives and, you know, not even, you know, it's not reactive. It's, it's proactive. Uh, But I was looking up what you said about 60 minutes and, you know, if you're listening and you want to, you know, understand more about this whole event. Uh, the article is called Inside the Attack that Almost Sent the U.S. to War with Iran. And that made me that made me think, you know, I'm not taking um, politics. I don't know anything about politics. I'm taking aerospace engineering, which means, you know, I'm just trying to learn about planes and how they go zoom and how to make them go zoom gooder. <laughs> but um, how did that how did we not go to war with a country that was literally trying to kill hundreds of Americans? Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, uh, it's pretty amazing. Um, you know, I, I think that if you know, American lives were lost that night, I think that there was a different plan in uh, in store, and I think that obviously the um, leaders in the DoD and uh, President Trump at the, at the time had plans, and grace of God, nobody was killed. And I think that's you know a credit to the leadership on that base at the time too that they got us out of there, and. Uh, and you know they they trusted their intelligence, uh, which is you know you wouldn't think it would be too tough to do, but you know we get what seem like credible threats all the time, uh, and sometimes they're not acted on, or sometimes they are acted on, and nothing seems to happen. Uh, so it's it's easy to get complacent, but uh, yeah, credit to those guys uh, that night for making the call and getting us out of there, for sure. Yeah. Um... Definitely, 100%. I mean, I can't even speak to that. I really have nothing to contribute to that one. Uh, this is an insane story. Uh, I'll have to go back to my meeting notes here. Uh, let's see. If we're going to take it back, um, actually, no, let's keep it forward. So if you had to, you know, so do you have any other missions uh, in Al-Assad that you had to, like, specific that was, like, um, the combat rat rescue mission so there's a pilot out there and they needed help and you had to go get them did you ever have one of those scenarios yeah so we had uh it's funny you ask because you know we we go on alert 
And so you're on alert for a certain period of time, and then you give up the alert to the next formation, and the next formation is on alert for a certain period of time, for you know a period of hours. And uh, right when we got there, uh, six hours prior to me taking the alert for the first time, uh, we get this we get this mission. Uh, this Apache goes down. They had uh, they had maintenance problems. Uh, and so they weren't shot down. Uh, pilots were okay, but they landed, you know, outside the wire. And so I was helping my buddy, like, you know, get to the aircraft and get all those, get all his equipment and stuff. Uh, and, it, and they took off and they, they did the mission and they, they picked up the two and it was, it was pretty uneventful. Uh, but at the time I was thinking like, gosh, if, why couldn't this Apache go down <laughs> seven hours later and maybe I could have been out there you know actually doing the mission uh but no luckily uh the rest of the time that we were there there weren't there weren't any other uh pilots that went down uh pretty sure you'd hear about it in the news if you know a fighter pilot had to eject over uh, enemy territory and luckily that hasn't happened in a long time um so yeah there sometimes it's slow out there uh, but we're, we're always standing ready uh, because you never you never know when the mission is going to come to you, and you might you might only have one in your career, uh, you know, one big one, and so uh, yeah, you just always got to be ready. So when you say ready, um, it sounds like you know you were you're one of those people who's like, oh, I want to be there. You know, if something happens, I want to be on the scene. Um, you know, executing the mission. Um, that's a, that's a great mindset to have. You know, for someone who has to respond. You know, because I know it can get scary and that can be a deterrent. Um, was there ever a moment in your life, in your training where you're like, oh, my God, I, I really don't want to have to like, like self, like self-doubt or um, just any of that? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think that Air Force pilot training is a great way to show your weaknesses and uh you know, really help you analyze, like, you know, where do I need to improve or, you know, where, uh, you know, is this even for me? Um, so I, th I think that uh, the whole the whole training pipeline kind of gets you prepared uh, for some of that. And then that way, uh, once you actually get deployed and, you you know, you're out there, uh, you can kind of fall back on your training. And I know that's a kind of a kind of a cliche, but it's true. Uh, you know, if you're always doing things the same way that you always have, uh, you can be confident that you're up for success and got those habits instilled in you that are going to help you in combat. So let's throw out the Uno reverse card. Let's say you got shot down and now you need to wait for another payback. What's what's the protocol that goes on? You know when that happens. Yeah. Uh, so each each pilot in the Air Force has uh, a plan of action uh, if that were to happen. Uh, each pilot has the basic training. Uh, you probably heard of SEER, uh, survival, evasion, rescue, or resistance and escape. Um, and so we, we all kind of have that common background. So we, uh, so as rescue pilots, we, we can kind of, you know, almost get in the head of the, the guy on the ground. We can, you know, you can imagine that he's scared and might be a little confused and might be injured, things like that. So if I were on the ground, uh, I'd be getting on my radio. Like we talked about, like, uh, you know, in rescue, we, we like to think like we, you know, as individuals, you know, we, we carry multiple weapons and, uh, you know, we're always, uh, we've had some pretty awesome training and training opportunities to, to learn how to use those weapons. But 
in that situation, my best weapon is a radio because I can I can talk to you know my bros up top and I can tell them where I'm at and uh, you know I can kind of give them the the sit rep on the ground. Uh, and so the only thing that's going to help me at that point is getting another helicopter in or you know maybe getting an ar army convoy in there to get me out of there. Um, and that's the that's the real thing that's that's pounded into you at at Sear is that once you you know, once you leave the cockpit, like you are no longer, like you're no longer an, an operator. They basically treat you as, uh, you know, you're now the objective. Um, and so you just kind of have to be conscious of that because uh, you don't want those PJs getting too many bright ideas and uh, getting rough with you, uh, <laughs> trying to, uh, you know, confirm your identity, even though you know, as, as service members, it's pretty easy to, to identify another American out there. Yeah, I'd imagine so. Um, but let's talk about the gear, um, you use as a PAVAR pilot. So, um, is there anything different or like, what's your helmet and your suit look like? Is it, is there any special, anything to know about it? Uh, not too much. Uh, we've, we've been blessed with some pretty awesome equipment. Uh, you know, we just wear the, the basically the two piece flight suits we'll wear, you know, uh, the OCP pants, and then it, it, we call it a combat shirt. It's basically like a, you know, like a, ta a tan shirt with a, basically OCP uh, uh, print arms, basically. Uh, and then we got our vest on top of that with our plates in it. We've got uh, soft plates and then hard plates on both the front and the back. Uh, your vest is, is yours, so you can uh, you can customize it and and, uh, and lay it out however you want. You know, you can have. All your ammo on your front you can have your ammo you know in your in your bag kind of like on the outside of your bag um and how do you configure it yeah so i uh kind of like i talked about earlier like number one thing i want available to me is my radio uh <laughs> it's super nerdy to say mm -hmm. but uh you know if i get that radio call off uh the quicker i can do that the quicker we can all get out of there uh, as far as i know uh no modern uh, 60 air crew has gotten in a, uh, you know, a gunfight, uh, you know, at least, you know, a, a mass gunfight, I mm -hmm. should say like, I know rounds, rounds have left the aircraft before, uh, but, uh, nothing that, you know, not like overwhelming force. And then I've got a couple mag pouches. Uh, I've got a knife on the front, you know, just in case I needed to cut myself out of, you know, any, any kind of the, uh, the restraint system that we have, you know, the seatbelt uh, in the aircraft. Um, we also got, uh, if we're flying any, any kind of water missions, you know, I've got my, uh, uh, basically my air uh, right on the front with the, you know, a mouthpiece. Uh, if we go down the water, you know, I've got uh, air uh, to breathe. Um, and then I, and then I've just got, just got my helmet as well. Uh, you know, a standard helmet. Um, and then a face mask and that's it. Wow. That's a lot of, that's a lot of gear. So what's your, you mentioned you have ammo, you have ammo pouches and gear pouches. What's your service weapon? I know that the helicopter pilots, I've heard rumors that they, you know, actually that they carry more than just a pistol. Is that correct? Yeah. So we, uh, each of us has an M9 and an M4 in the aircraft. Uh, so we'll kind of, you know, it's kind of, again, it's up to the each pilot, but, you know, we, I kind of shove my M4 down in the map case uh, and I've got my M9 like up on my chest. So if I ever need to access it, you know, it's right there. Got it. Okay. Yeah. 
um, do fighter and fighter fighter pilots don't really have the same setup, right? Because their cockpits are a little more compact. They really don't have the room for it. Yeah, yeah. So those guys, uh, I'm not exactly sure uh, how they carry their sidearm. Uh, I know I think some guys carry it on their leg, maybe, uh, or it might be in their seat kit. I'm not 100 positive about that one. Uh, but it's pretty cool. They've got a kind of a fold up stock on their M4 and it's shoved right in their seat kit. Uh, so if they have to eject, like they, they have their M4 with them with all their ammo, uh, basically in their seat kit, seat kit, which is pretty cool. Uh, kind of jealous about that one. Cause you know, it'd, it'd be nice to have ours, uh, fold up as well. So I mean, I'm sure you could request that right from the armor. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm sure they can make any modifications I want. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> Uh, no, we just got the standard M4, so okay, that's okay. Yeah. So, but but as a pilot, um, you're not really expected to use that too much. When would be the situation where would it just be um, when you had a crash and you need to get back and you need to defend yourself? Yeah, yeah, that would be a that probably be the primary um, situation. Another, you know, obviously around those bases, uh, depending on the base that you're at, uh, security may maybe pretty good or you know it could be a little um you you, you might want the security of an m4 <laughs> so uh just for that that base defense is also important as well and the um the special mission the special mission aviators is that is that right smaz um yep. do they yep. also pretty much the only thing that they really need to do is just man that or you give the whole list of things they need to do but the the only thing that they'd be really shooting at the aircraft is a 50 cal, right? Do they have the same weapons as you? Yep. So they'll they'll have they'll also have the M9 and the M4. Uh, but yeah, they're they're bread and butters at 50 cal. If they uh if they see it, they, they do shoot. They're they're using the big boy. <laughs> very nice, very nice. Yeah. Um. So I know you mentioned your training earlier in the podcast, and you know how much training did you have to do, you know, I'm, I've watched YouTube videos of where they have you roll over underwater, where they have you go through sear. Could you, uh, talk on that? Yeah. So, uh, uh, for me, I did the, uh, the sear portion first, uh, before I did the water survival. Um, so you're really going through each, each of those steps You're You're learning how to survive. Number one, obviously the school is out, uh, in Washington. Uh, and so you're basically out in the woods, uh, learning what you can eat, learning what you can't eat, uh, <laughs> learning what you can use and, uh, you know, possibly get yourself out of that situation. Uh, you learn the evasion piece. Um, obviously the structures are pretty good at finding, uh, all those students out there in the woods, but, uh, you, you know, you learn your best how to evade, uh, any potential captures, um, learn how to resist. So in the case that they do capture, you learn how to, uh, uh, you know, combating any of those psychological um, attacks that they may have, um, and then uh, escape. Uh, you know, the escape is kind of, kind of the more sensitive part, uh, but they, you know, teach you all the t- uh, tips and tricks uh, for that phase of, you know, your experience there. Uh, and, and then, yeah, like, like kind of like you mentioned, the, yeah, you go to water survival and uh, you learn how to really survive, like, if you're out in the middle of the ocean for weeks, uh, what would you what would you eat? What would you drink? You know, how would you get water? How would you tend to any wounds that you have, or you know, things like that. And then also, uh, as rotary wing pilots, uh, we go we go to the dunker as well. And so, 
they stick you in this big thing. It's, it looks like a, uh, like a, sh like a short school bus and, uh, you're, you're strapped in there and you either got your, got uh, your air, uh, or sometimes they do it without the air. Uh, so they test you in, in both ways. Uh, and so then they'll, they'll, you know, you're right side up and they'll dunk you, you know, in a 20 foot deep pool. And then they'll take the whole thing and just spin it upside down. And, uh, and also you may have goggles on, you may have a blacked out goggles on, uh, because there's always the chance that you go down in the water at night and you're not going to be able to see anything. Uh, and so they, they gave you uh, plenty of opportunities to, uh, practice, uh, getting out of that wrecked aircraft and, uh, getting back up to the surface. <laughs> I have to imagine it's pretty daunting, pretty intimidating task. Are you comfortable in the water? Did you have too hard of a time in the water survival portion? Yeah, that, uh, that's not my, it's not my most fun uh, oh, no. experience ever in the Air Force. <laughs> no, it, uh, it it was fine. You know, I I got through it. Uh, but yeah, going down in a sixty, like in the water, probably the number one way I do not want to die. <laughs> yeah, um, Just strapped in there, going to the bottom of the sea does not sound fun. <laughs> You're like highly would not recommend. No. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Any other training uh, camps you went to that taught you something valuable? Oh, let's see here. Um, obviously, it all started with uh, uh, field training. <laughs> uh, no, I, I actually really enjoyed field training. You know, it's it's a blast to get out there with your buddies and you know, uh, out in, on the field. Do you guys still go to Mississippi? Uh, whoa, what do you mean still? Game, Shelby? Oh, that's kind of funny that you should mention that because because of COVID we are. But it was I was under the impression that we always went to Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama. Oh yeah. Well, uh, when I was in, we, we did, you know, the two weeks at Maxwell and then we did the two weeks out at, at Camp Shelby, oh, really? uh, shoot, shooting each other with paintball guns. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, that was fun. Uh, but as far as other air force schooling, no, we, we just had the, I just had the flight training and, and both of those were good. Awesome instructors and, uh, yeah, cool experiences. How was the T6? Uh, I think that's the coolest plane ever. Yeah, the T6 is a blast. Uh, you know, you're you're just starting your flight career, so you're, you know, I I was probably the dumbest student ever, but uh, I didn't know how dumb I was because you know I was just barely holding on to the stab there and uh, just trying to s stick with it. Uh, but it's, it's cool because the instructors give you so much opportunity to to learn and to get better and uh, to do this, you know, cool things like flip it upside down and uh, get yourself and uh, terribly uncomfortable situations and, you know, fly fingertip with another aircraft. And, wow. uh, yeah, it's, it's a blast, man. Was there, what was the hardest thing for you to learn during your training? Like, what was the, you know, the one thing that you remember struggling the most? Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Hovering, uh, hovering, hovering the helicopter and not, uh, jockeying all the controls. So, you know, we, uh, the instructors there, uh, their their method of teaching, you know, one technique of teaching somebody how to hover is like, you know, you have the cyclic and it's it's basically like sitting like sitting right in front of you in between your legs, and so that's going to control you know forward and back and left and right uh, as you hover, and so if you're if you're moving that all around, it's it's going to be uncomfortable for everybody in the aircraft, uh, and you're gonna you're just gonna move all over the place, uh, so they say you know. 
imagine that uh, a red solo cup is sitting right on top of the cyclic and you don't want to tip over that red solo cup so you can't be moving that thing all over the place and of course this you know 23 year old guys like yeah we know where red solo cups are we know you can't <laughs> can't spill that beer all over the place so <laughs> that uh that was an easy lesson to get i guess what what's what's that what's uh red so i mean wouldn't know our, yeah, our yeah okay <laughs> chronogram i don't know what that is <laughs> um i know i know you don't go to the academy so i know you've seen a red solo cup before <laughs> what no so <laughs> So that was the biggest challenge for you, but you got through it. Um, hovering is a huge, huge part of what the PayPal does. Um, and, you know, and on that note, what is the biggest challenge you've had in your career? Uh, biggest challenge I've had. Uh, biggest challenge I've had is, is probably uh, learning the officer to enlist a relationship. Oh, okay. um, so it's in, it's interesting in our in our squadron because we are half officers and half enlisted. We've got, we've got our SMAs and we've got our, our pilots basically. And we've got other support functions as well that we um, work with every, every day. But in my mind, I was like, you know, uh, coming into the air force, I was like, Oh, I'm an officer. So then, you know, all the, all the enlisted, like uh, I didn't look down on them at all, but you know, I knew that they're like, you know, they're over there, I'm over here. Uh, and, you know, if they need something, they'll come to me, uh, you know, as an officer in charge, like if I need something, I'll go to them uh, and have them, you know, help out. Um, but being deployed and going TDY all over the country with these guys all the time, like it, we are like really just one big group. Uh, you know, we eat together, uh, we go out together at night, you know, we, we live together deployed, um, we work out together. It's you know, it's, it's really just one big group. And, uh, that was, that was tough for me to understand early on because I got all these lessons and, you know, ROTC and otherwise about, you know, ODE relationships and things like that. Uh, but in rescue, uh, that's not really the case. Uh, there's still that respect there, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's just one big group of, uh, guys and gals. So, so what was the challenge in that aspect? Was it, you were being too casual or, um, I'm not sure I completely understand. Yeah, uh, I think early on, I, would, I think I was just a little bit too formal, honestly. Like I didn't, I didn't quite understand. Like, in order for this relationship to be reciprocal, like it needs to be a little bit casual. Like, your job is not to boss these guys around. They're they're excellent at what they do, mm -hmm. um, and I don't, I don't really even need to tell them what to do because they're such awesome professionals. Um, so, uh, the challenge was loosening up and and uh not taking myself too seriously and just knowing like hey i work with these guys every day i'm going to war with these guys and so yeah that, that was the challenge yeah and I, and I imagine that's going to be uh a challenge you know for a lot of us who are you know going to commission and work with enlisted all the time yeah so uh on that note you know as a pilot yeah. what are, what's your leadership really look like yes yeah, so it's a little bit different in the flying in uh, the flying world because uh pilots are not offered leadership opportunities early in their careers at all mm -hmm. um you can have very small leadership opportunities so like for example uh i'm about to take over my first shop and so i'll i'll be in charge of or i'll be responsible for uh two other officers two other young officers um 
two NCOs and a civilian. And so, uh, so that's kind of the leadership opportunity you get in your, in your first, you know, I guess I've been in now five years. Mm -hmm. And so that's very small compared to uh, my wife, who's an airfield operations officer. She's in charge of 65 people. And so she is kicking my butt in the leadership department. Uh, but, but as a pilot, like I'm a leader in the aircraft. And so I'm a, I'm a leader in a very, very specific, you know, very specific job. So it's not quite the same. Like I, I don't, I don't, uh, handle personnel issues quite as much, but I'm, you know, I'm responsible for these guys' lives when I'm flying around up there with them. So, uh, yeah, it's a big, uh, leadership opportunity in that way. And how would you, I'm sure you've experienced levels of good leadership, bad leadership, you know, and a lot of us want to go pilot. So what are the things that we should look out for and things we should implement in our own leadership styles that will really, really do a good job to get the mission done and take care of people? Yeah. Uh, number one, be, be able, if you're going into the flying community or going into the flying world in the Air Force, uh, you got to be able to take a joke <laughs> and you got to be able to, uh, you know, take criticism as well. And then also just be able to respond positively to that. And if you make a mistake, own up to it. Uh, you know, understand that things happen, um, especially if you have young enlisted with you, uh, being able to show them that like mistakes happen and you can bounce back from them. And so therefore they can understand that they can bounce back from any, any pop possible mistakes they have. And then they just have more confidence in you as a leader as well. Uh, if they see that from you. Understood. Um, you know, let, let's go back to the the Pavehawk airframe as itself. What's your favorite and least favorite characteristic of the Pavehawk? My favorite, let's see here. Favorite is definitely shooting. Like, <laughs> you know, the uh, we don't have a huge range, uh, but we can, you know, we uh, we actually just went to a, uh, a big TDY up in Boise uh, where they had some awesome pop-up targets and we were able to shoot all these targets and uh, just seeing the accuracy of these guys in the back uh, was pretty awesome. So just getting out there and, uh, and shooting the guns and, uh, you know, we call it terminal area employment uh, and actually able to employ on targets is, is pretty sweet. Uh, so yeah, shooting is my favorite. Least favorite is we're so slow. Like uh, oh, no, yeah. we're so slow and we're so heavy. Uh, we, we really like to strap all kinds of junk on this aircraft and, uh, you know, give us all kinds of swoopy gadgets and stuff. And, and let's see how much, let's see how much PJ gear we can throw on the back of the ox tanks and, and things like that. Uh, it results in us just being so heavy and, you know, we're right at max gross weight all the time. So, oh, wow. uh, yeah, if I was, if I had it my way, we would be uh, 60 knots faster and uh, a couple thousand pounds lighter. <laughs> I think I'm getting some deja vu. I think you mentioned yeah. <laughs> that on the last podcast, but yeah, that's funny. Um, I was surprised you didn't mention anything about refueling because one of the most distinctive features on the Paypoc is that giant fueling pylon on the front. So, you know, real quick, how cool is, you know, being able to dock up to a, a tanker and just, just refuel like that. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely cool and it's definitely useful uh, out there when you're in the real world needing gas. Uh, I remember, uh, you know, obviously as a student, like you scare the crap out of yourself, like <laughs> getting way too close to the tanker or like, you know, converging on it way too quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, we say, 
you know, you, sh you should converge on a, you know, a brisk at a brisk walk pace. Like if you're walking, like that's how quickly you should converge on the on the drogue back there. You know, as students, like sometimes we converge, like we're just sprinting at that thing. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, Har is we call it uh, helicopter air to air fueling Har. Uh, Har is awesome. Uh, it's a challenge every time, especially when it's super bumpy out there. Uh, but it's definitely a cool aspect of our jobs when you, you actually get the plug and you're getting gas. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a cool accomplishment. How many other airframes out there, uh, helicopters can refuel? Very, uh, very few. So we've got us and we've got army Chinooks. Oh, okay. Um, let's see here. We got, uh, army. There's some army special operations birds who also have probes. Um, they can kind of take them on or uh, put them on, take them off as they see fit based on their mission set. Uh, we typically just leave ours on all the time. Uh, so they're pretty unique in that way. Um, I think that's it. The Paypock is often called the Jolly Green Giant. And I know Lockheed Martin is or maybe Northrop Grumman. I should know. I did a briefing on this. Uh, are, is coming out with the Jolly Green Giant 2. How much do you know about the project and are you excited uh, about the release of the new product? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. The whiskey uh, is kind of what we refer to it, you know, the HH 60 whiskey. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think the guys have quite taken to the Jolly Green Giant 2 uh, mantra. It's, it's a mouthful when you can just say the whiskey, <laughs> but uh, the whiskey uh, it's, it's basically a mic model, uh, which the army has been flying for about 10 years. Um, so it's, it's nice that it's going to be clean and upgraded. The avionics are going to be way better. Uh, defensive systems are going to be a little bit better. Uh, the comm suite is uh, going to be a little bit better. Really, it's going to be the it's going to be a pretty similar helicopter to what we got now, um, because it's basically a mic. Um, it's going to have basically the same capabilities as we have now, uh, but we're going to be able to fly for a lot longer, uh, which is nice. Our our golf models have been flying since the 80s. Uh, and they're they're pretty beat up. So <laughs> I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you see yourself flying them in the future? Or are you pretty attached to the golf model? Uh, yeah. So I think so. The golf model is going to be phased out probably over the next five to ten years. And so if I if I still want to fly helicopters, uh, I'm pretty much going to be locked into at someday uh, transferring over to the whiskey. Uh, so yeah, I'm excited for that day. Um, I'm actually, Han and I are, are scheduled to move next year. Um, we would really like to go out to, uh, Okinawa, Japan. Uh, that's, that's kind of our, our number one option at this point, but, uh, they don't have whiskeys out there. So it might, maybe a little bit of time for me to transfer over. Yeah. Uh, Okinawa sounds nice. Is that, uh, is there air force base over there? Yep. Yeah. So okay. it's, uh, Kadena air base. Uh, they've got sixties, they've got. Uh, I think they've got strike eagles. Uh, and so, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, of uh, decommissioning, phasing out, if the Pavehawk entirely got just decommissioned um, for some reason or other, uh, what other airframe would you probably go to? Would you like to go to? Oh, dude. Uh, I would love to go to the A-10. Like the A-10 is A10. so, so classic. Uh, and like their their mission is so cool. Like they're they're supporting the ground guys all the time, and lots of lots of uh, airframes 
uh, lots of aircraft and pilots can say that, but A-10s are like, that is their mission is, is close air support. Uh, so that'd be cool. Uh, if I couldn't get A-10s, uh, Strike Eagles would be cool. I know two aircraft this whole this whole interview, but uh, uh, yeah, Strikes would be cool because they they can kind of do a little bit of everything. I got I got a buddy who uh, flies uh, 15 sea miles uh, up in Oregon, and uh, I'm sure he would kick my butt for saying that. But uh, yeah, I'd, I'd have to say A-10s or Strikes. Fixed wing, sir. I am very surprised that you'd um, go from rotary directly to fixed wing. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I had a blast in T sixes, uh, but I just, I just loved the CSAR mission, so I, I had to go for it. <laughs> all right, let's rewind about an hour and a half, uh, all the way to when we started talking about um, your ROTC career in Wisconsin. Do uh, you mention that you're a pretty good cadet, even though you didn't say it directly? <laughs> <laughs> um, what was your, what is your advice? For cadets out there who are trying to go um, fly pavehawks and you know do these missions, you know what is your advice for them right now? Yeah, uh, so I, I would just say, whatever step you're on, do your best at that step. I, I'm totally guilty for you know for looking ahead and uh, planning and uh, and doing all that, but really, like if you're not taking care of the little things, you're never going to be able to take care of the big things. Uh, so just just bloom where you're planted right now. Do really well in school. Do really well in ROTC. You know, make a bunch of friends. Uh, go out on the weekends and get in trouble. Not too much trouble, but maybe a little trouble. <laughs> and uh, have a have a blast and uh, and just work hard where, wherever you're at right now. Well-rounded, holistic. I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, so Max isn't here with me today. I think you got to meet him briefly uh, the other day. And he would kill me if I didn't ask you what you did for fun in college or, or now, um, just whatever oh, you do. Um, you know, if you have some free time, you know, on base, off base, like what, what would you, if we weren't doing this interview and you had 24 hours, what would you be doing? Oh man, I would, uh, be inviting my brothers down from Wisconsin and we'd be playing golf. If we had 24 hours, we'd probably try getting like two or three rounds of golf. Uh, the weather, uh, weather down here is amazing. Uh, so you can play golf year round. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to try to get out tomorrow morning, you know, at 6 a.m. and get around in before work. So uh, that's what I'd be doing. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, yeah, too bad Max was in. All, all the man does is golf. But there's some beautiful golfing up in Arizona. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's some beautiful golf out there in San Diego. We uh, we came out TDY in November. Uh, I got to play uh, Balboa Park, and I got to play the you know the Nasni course, and I got to play uh, Torrid Pines. Ooh, yeah, yeah. You guys are you guys are blessed out there too. Uh, north course or south course? Uh, it was the south course. Okay, I think the PGA yeah. um, plays on the north course. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But yeah, if, you, if you're, that's actually right by, um, or Balboa Park's right by campus. So, you know, if you ever find yourself in, um, you know, Southern California again, and you'd like to come visit our attachment, give a, give a little pep talk. We love having guests. Um, so please just reach out. We'd love to have you. Yeah, man, totally. That'd be a blast. I think, you know, we should probably start wrapping up here soon. One of our longer episodes. Uh, oh, geez. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, that, that means it's good. <laughs> There's so much content out there. <laughs> um, 
And there's one thing we always like to ask tradition on this podcast. What does leadership mean to you? What does leadership mean to me? Uh, I would say leadership means working together with others and bringing them up to a level that they could not or uh, could not just could not aspire to previously. So if I can, if I can bring up those guys around me, if I can bring up those smas and uh, help them achieve whatever goals that they have, whether that's a successful deployment or, um, or becoming an instructor or you know, maybe even going to OTS someday, like if I can inspire those guys and uh, make them better, uh, I can leave the Air Force knowing that I did my best and you know I made a, a positive improvement. Beautifully said, sir. Uh, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. We really enjoyed having you. We got some good insight on, a, on an AFSC that we have not heard about, uh, you know, the special operations community. We don't hear too much about that. So we really uh, appreciate you coming on, giving us that perspective. Lots of good advice out there. Captain Tordoff, appreciate your time on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks, brother. Thanks for having me.